Well, turn with me, please, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 1. This was not what I intended to uh, preach on Palm Sunday, but the more that I've thought about it, I think it is actually very appropriate to consider this morning. Uh, In light of the news and the tragic world in which we live, to consider what it is that Jesus came to do. So we'll be looking at Galatians 3, 3 to 5. I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Please stand if you are able. This is God's Word in Galatians 1, 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, we need to see Jesus today. And we ask that You would show us our sin and our Savior this morning. Give us the hope of the Gospel in this present evil age. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life again. These are the words of Chad Scruggs, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, our family. Uh, just hours after seven precious lives were lost in a shooting at Covenant School. Six victims and the perpetrator, including Pastor Scruggs' nine-year-old daughter, Hallie. This is a painful moment for the families of those who died, for the Covenant congregation, for our denomination, the PCA. As Christians, we weep with those who weep. This tragedy hits so close to home, though, because it's, it's hitting people we consider family, those, whom, those with whom we are united, right, by a common confession. So we weep with those who weep, but this makes it all the more painful. It's a painful time for all of us asking, how long, O Lord? Many wondering, if there is a God in heaven, how could this happen? And if that's you this morning, I'm really glad uh, you came here to worship this morning, uh, that you came here to worship Jesus in the midst of pain and confusion at a tragedy like this. It's understandable that it would cause pain and confusion. And that's just focusing appropriately today, I think, on one aspect of this fallen world. In one congregation of our denomination, in one corner of the world we call the United States, we could zoom in more closely on your life and uh, the struggles and suffering that you face. We could zoom out globally uh, and even stretch the canvas back through recent history and into the distant past. And the picture painted on that canvas would be too horrible for you to begin to look at. I heard someone make the point once that if we could sense all of the suffering of every person that lives and that has ever lived, it would be too much for us to bear. We couldn't bear it. It would simply be too much for us. So we need Jesus this morning. We need to see him. Today it's customary for the church to celebrate Palm Sunday, marking the triumphal entry of King Jesus into Jerusalem. The crowds came and 
they cried out as we read in the call to worship this morning, Hosanna, which literally means save us. The crowds longed to be delivered uh, by this man they regarded to be the long-awaited promised king. They longed to be delivered uh, from political oppression and occupation, not knowing that the deliverance that Jesus would bring would far outstrip everything they were looking for. Most didn't comprehend what this unassuming rabbi riding into town on a donkey was setting out to do over the next several days. The salvation that he would bring. uh, This way that salvation would come about. So as we wrestle with how to think about tragedy and evil, in, in light of ultimate questions and our ultimate hope, I think it's appropriate today to turn to a passage that reveals the work of salvation that this king, our king, set out to do. Our passage opens with two little words that I spoke with the children about, grace and peace. Grace and peace. These are incredibly important words for the Christian faith. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said that these two words constitute Christianity, grace and peace. Luther says, grace contains the forgiveness of sins, a joyful peace and a quiet conscience. But peace is impossible unless sin has been forgiven. That forgiveness of sins is ours in the work of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. So I want to look at three important gospel truths uh, that give us hope as we live in this world afflicted as it is and as afflicted as we are uh, by sin and misery. These aspects of gospel hope that we see in Galatians 1, all centering on the work of Christ giving himself for us. First, the problem. Christ gave himself for our sins. Second, the purpose. Christ gave himself to rescue us from this evil age. And finally, the plan. Christ gave himself according to the will of our Father. So first, the problem. Christ gave himself for our sins. For our sins. That is the problem. Sin is the problem which we face. Sin is humanity's main problem, played out in gut-wrenching clarity over the course of not only this last week, but through the centuries Since the beginning, it's the problem that needs dealing with. And it's the problem Christ gave himself to answer. Maybe someone's thinking, isn't this just spiritualizing things? Why are you spiritualizing this? We need to reform the system, change the script, actually do something about this mess of a world that we're living in. And I say to that, amen. Absolutely. We absolutely must work to change so many things about our neighborhoods and our nation. But I stand by this as the truth. Sin is the problem. It's the problem. It's not a claim to exclusivity. It's a claim to ultimacy. Sin is the ultimate problem. There are many, many real, immediate, urgent problems in the world that we need to address, that Christians must address. Problems we're compelled compelled to confront by the golden rule of love. Love God and love others. But that's just it. When others are hated instead of loved, when we don't love God and we don't love our neighbor, the problem is sin. Whether that's through violence or through inaction, the problem is sin. So pointing out the problem of sin and the divine solution for sin isn't inaction. 
It's addressing the ultimate problem. Sin is the problem. The problem beneath every other problem. And if we don't get that, if we don't get that, we're getting nowhere. And Galatians 1.4 tells us that Christ gave himself for our sin. So, we've said sin is the problem. What, what is sin? As our church defines it, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Love God and love others. That's the law. Sin is walking out of step with God's law or actively opposing God's law. Living life by our own rules, whether inadvertently or intentionally. Sin is living not under the gaze of a holy God to bring glory to a holy God, but living really however we want to. Living however we please. Living against God. Living against others. Living only for ourselves. So why is sin a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because we were created to live for God and to live for His glory. As Creator, God alone is worthy to demand that we adore Him and obey Him and follow Him and serve Him. Those are His rights as our Creator to demand our obedience and our allegiance. Our Creator makes it clear in His Word that sin is a universal problem and that it's the ultimate problem. All have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. The soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.20. That's why, by the way, the law can't save sinners. And we'll come back to that. The soul that sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's why it's a big deal. That's why it's the problem. And I think it's important here to make sure we're on the same page, right? I'm not just talking about the problem that's out there in the world. Sin isn't just the problem that's out there. Sin is a problem out there in the world, but sin is a problem here in the church. Sin isn't just the problem out there when someone walks into a supermarket or a synagogue or a school to do harm, but it's the problem in every human heart. Sin is our problem. It's an in-here problem as well. And bringing attention to this as the main problem in a moment like this rubs many the wrong way. Many would think this is thinking about things in a reductionistic way. It's impractical. Maybe it feels callous even. I understand that. I really do. And I don't want to downplay the real world concrete steps that ought to be taken to respond to things like this. But we have to insist as Christians that the gospel changes lives. The gospel changes us to seek the good of our neighbor and the good of our world. But it is what rescues us from the ultimate problem. So even in the face of the worst, most gut-wrenching evil in this world, the truth remains, no matter what we can improve in this evil, unjust world, by loving God and loving our neighbor, and we must do that, whatever we can do to make this world better for school children and the marginalized and those discriminated against and those who are hated, and we must do things to make things better, nothing is fixed until the truth of the ultimate problem grips our heart and the solution that God has given for our sin. That's the real world solution that the gospel gives. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 says, and just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Salvation from sin and judgment isn't a spiritualizing platitude. 
It's a real-world solution for the deepest and most ultimate problem of every human heart. Maybe someone is still asking. It still seems a little cold. It still seems a little calloused in light of all of the sin and the pain and the suffering in our world, pointing to sin as the main problem that we're facing. Well, I'd invite you then to hear from Jesus this morning. I think this would be helpful to us. Turn over with me for a moment in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13. In Luke 13, I want you to listen to what Jesus says when he's presented with an example of really heinous evil. He responds by offering another example of what appears to be a senseless tragedy here in Luke 13. And he points to the ultimate problem that we're talking about. Verses 1 through 5, we read, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? It appears they were implying this. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We don't know why this topic was brought up with Jesus, uh, but notice how he responds to the question. Now, he's not speaking this way, sitting across from someone grieving the loss of their loved ones. It doesn't appear to be the case. So the context matters. But notice what he does. He speaks plainly about the problem to people who are proposing wrong answers to the reason for suffering. He doesn't unravel the conundrum of the evil that Pilate had done. And it was evil. It was essentially a religious hate crime by today's definition. Besides being this political oppression of people, Jesus doesn't seek to explain the hidden purposes of God when he's asked these questions. No, he goes to the ultimate problem of sin. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. J.C. Ryle, thinking about Jesus' words here, he makes a, a really great observation I want to share with you. Here's what he said. A murder, a sudden death, a shipwreck, or a railway accident will completely occupy the minds of a neighborhood and be in the mouth of everyone you meet. And yet, these very persons dislike talking of their own deaths and their own prospects in the world beyond the grave. Such is human nature in every age. In religion, men are ready to talk of anybody's business rather than their own. But Ryle goes on to say that Christians respond differently. Here's what he says. Does he, the Christian, hear of some awful crime or deed of wickedness? He will say to himself, are my sins forgiven? Does he hear of worldly men running into every excess of sin? He will say to himself, who has made me any different? What has kept me from walking in the same road except the free grace of God? Let us take a kind interest in all around us. Let us feel tender pity and compassion for all who suffer violence or are removed by sudden death. But let us never forget to look at home and to learn wisdom for ourselves from all that happens to others. I think that's really helpful. Uh, Ryle, uh, I think he nails it. We need to think about this in light of not everything that's happening out there, but starting first with our own hearts. 
Uh, this, this passage that we're looking at for just a moment in Luke, it was really helpful to me um, some years ago in 2011 when uh, the tornado decimated Joplin, Missouri, and I had family living there. And so I would go and visit, and what I heard after that devastating tragedy over and over again were the words, it's gone. It's gone. That's what people said. This store, that neighborhood, such and such a park, it's gone. It's a striking, sad thing to hear with everybody saying that about their beloved city. I remember we uh, went to one man's house. I was helping, volunteering, trying to clean up some of the debris, and, and we were uh, sifting through the rubble of his home, and we found his golf ball collection. That seems like a little thing, right? But he had collected golf balls at all of the courses he had traveled around the world to play at. But it was significant to this man in the middle of an it's-gone situation. So where is God when this happens? When something like this week happens, when something like a tornado decimating your city, and that's happened this week as well. Where is God when it happens? Some have even asked, how could there be a God when things like this happen? I remember sitting around uh, the table with friends in Joplin and family and not really knowing what to say. How do you explain the reasons behind something like this? So I turned to Luke 13. I don't know if I explained it well, but it seemed better to just point to the ultimate problem and the hope there is in Jesus rather than try to unravel the mysteries of God's providence. I think it's like R. Kent Hughes says, he put it really wonderfully when he said, death is an enemy, but it's also an evangelist. Incidentally, in Jesus' conversations about these tragedies, uh, the question acknowledged God, right? They said, did this happen because there were worse sinners than other people? But that's not typically the question we get today. Today, it's far more common for your friend or your coworker or your family member to ask you, how could there even be a God? How is God even real in light of this? Maybe you're a Christian, but this week you're finding yourself wrestling with that question. Maybe that's you this morning. Like the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, you look at evil people and you think, summarizing, paraphrasing, how can the evil get away with murder and stay fat and happy with no fear of judgment? But then what happens? Asaph goes to the house of the Lord and he's reminded of the way the story ends. That's what being here this morning does for us. As we look to this purpose for which Jesus came into the world, and as we worship together, we're reminded of the way the story ends. We're reminded to take our eyes off of our news feeds and off of the news and to put them on Jesus again. The good news is this. Yes, like Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But Christ gave himself for our sins. Christ died to save sinners. By faith in him, Christ is for you. That makes the new heart of repentance and new life possible. Remember, this is Paul writing Galatians 1, which we're studying today. Who is Paul? Paul is a former religious zealot and a murderer writing this letter to the church in Galatia. There is grace even for the worst kind of sinner who turns their life over to the Lord. Jesus gave himself for Paul's sins, for your sins, for my sins. And that is mind-blowing, undeserved grace for sinners. Gospel hope in an evil age is the God of all creation coming into this evil age, being born to die on a cross to save his people from their sins. Through his victory over the grave, death has lost its sting. And as the old hymn says, it is not death to die, 
for those who by faith cling to the one who defeated death on their behalf. Christ gave himself for our sins. That's the first point. The first thing our passage shows us. The problem of sin and the wonderful solution and answer to that problem. Christ gave himself for our sins. And as I see it, the gospel hope in an evil age in this passage just gets better. So let's look now at the second point. The second point is the purpose. Christ gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age. Look at Galatians 1.4. Galatians 1.4. It says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This present evil age is a way of describing uh, the world and all of the ways that it is set against the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and the gospel of grace. Uh, This present evil age looks like sinful acts and it's uh, the burden of a sin-cursed world where suffering and death still hold sway. I don't think we need any convincing that this is a present evil age. Wars and refugees, abortion and racism, poverty, terminal illness, broken marriages, your own sin dragging you down everywhere you go. In an evil age where sin and its effects uh, touch every aspect of our lives, where's the rescue? Where's the rescue? Well, the answer is that this rescue has already begun. This rescue has begun. Just look around this room. Jesus has come. He's already begun to regenerate our hearts and redeem our souls. New creation, the perfect glory and peace of the age to come has already broken through into the present. It's already here. Hosanna, we just read. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of heaven is among you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. The kingdom has come. That's already here and now. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3.14 and 15, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you think, that's great. Praise God, but frankly, I am over it. I want off this planet now. I am so tired of living in this present evil age. I just want to see Jesus. Is that too much to ask? Well, here's the thing. We're still here because Jesus wants to show others himself through you. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And here's the amazing thing. Don't miss what he says next. I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. Sometimes we just want to see Jesus. But Jesus has us here because he wants others to see Jesus through us. Those who will believe in me because of their word. There will come a day when this present evil age will be over. Jesus will come. He will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow and pain. No more death, mourning, crying. It'll all be over and done. 
the former things, all this present evil age is, will have passed away. But until then, through the tears of pain, we hold out hope to those who are hurting, to those who are lost and confused, to those who are longing for meaning and answers in this present evil age. We we plead with them through tears uh, to see Jesus. We plead with them to receive living water that will fill them when they have cried themselves dry. Revelation 22.17, the Spirit and the Bride, that's the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friends, we've been rescued from this present evil age. It's just the beginning. Sometimes it doesn't look like much of a rescue. But we've been rescued. This present evil age has no hold on us. It has no power over us. It cannot destroy us as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who came to give himself for our sins and to rescue us from this present evil age. He's coming again. Glory is coming. But until then, we hold that rescue out to all who will believe and to all who will come to him. We ought to seek to change the world for the better bear one another's burdens in empathy and in action, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But for the love of the lost, more than anything else, seek to rescue those around you. Seek to rescue them from the ultimate problem of sin with the wonderful solution of Jesus who gave himself for our sins. That's why Jesus came. That's the purpose of his sacrifice. Christ gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age. That's the problem, our sin. That's the purpose of Christ's coming, to save us from sin. Just one more final incredible truth from these verses. The plan. Christ gave himself according to the will of God the Father. The news just gets better and better. When you look around at all the sin and the suffering and the death of this world, the buck doesn't stop with God. It's not God's fault. We did this. But here's the amazing thing. God has a plan that's better of the mess that we've made of things. Let's remember the story, okay? God created humanity in perfect righteousness and holiness to love and to serve him, to spread his glory throughout the entire creation. What could have possibly been better? What could be better than that? But leave it to human beings to mess everything up, right? Our first parents fell from that wonderful, mind-blowing arrangement and relationship with their creator by sinning against God. The world we live in now is plunged into sin at the fall. Adam disobeyed God and drugged the entire human race with him in his sinful rebellion and into the punishment for his sin. Every human being who has ever lived since then has followed in the footsteps of old man Adam. Just looking at the opening chapters of the Bible, one generation after the garden, what do we have? Fratricide. Cain stones his brother Abel to death in a field. We messed this up. We made a mess of these things. But here's the good news. This is again from our church's catechism because it beautifully describes this point. God's plan according to the will of God the Father. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in this estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery 
and into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. By a redeemer. That's the plan. Every human being deserves judgment. But God has a plan. God has a plan to send a redeemer. Christ gave himself for you according to the will of our God and Father. I think we know God better than if man had never fallen into sin in the first place. It's one thing for a creature to know that his creator loves him and has given him all of these good things to be enjoyed, right? But it is quite another thing for an enemy who deserves judgment to see the creator stoop down and enter into the mess that he's made to solve the problem and to bring him back to God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We've been focusing on these three verses in Paul's opening to Galatians, and we've surveyed a lot of passages. But this covenant, this plan of God to save his people is the linchpin of Paul's argument in Galatians. It's the heart of the good news that Paul is contending for with the Galatians. You see, the Galatians had been led astray by teachers who were imposing uh, works of the law on new converts. If they were to have any hope of being justified, they needed to add something to what Christ had already done completely. These false teachers were saying, Christ gave himself for your sins, plus you need to do this, this, and this in order to be saved. And Paul drives home to the Galatians the point that the law was never given as a way to be saved. It was never the point. Only someone perfectly righteous who could perfectly keep the law would be saved by it. None of us qualify. None of us can do that. For sinners like us, salvation has always been by the promise and plan of God. That salvation that we have received from Jesus was accomplished by the promised seed of Abraham who would come. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the promise. How does he do that? How does he give us salvation? How do we receive this grace? Well, Jesus does it by being the perfectly righteous Son of God, the one who delights to do the Father's will and to fulfill the law completely. He gives himself then by becoming the sacrifice in our place on a cross to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 3, 4-7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's it. That's the good news. That's gospel hope in this present evil age. If it could save a murderer like Paul and turn him into a missionary of grace, if it can turn murderers into missionaries, then the hope of the gospel isn't just thoughts and prayers. It is, if it can save a bloodthirsty Paul and make him a missionary of grace, which we can read and study this morning, then that is a real-world solution. It is the ultimate solution for the problem of sin and suffering and violence in this world. Because Jesus gave himself for your sins to rescue you from this present evil age according to the will of your God and Father to whom, Paul adds, be glory forever and ever, then those two little words we spoke of, grace and peace, they're yours. Grace and peace are yours because Jesus has come into this mess to save us from this mess according to the plan of his God and Father. Grace and peace to you Those words are yours because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you 
for your rescue plan in Jesus. We thank you for delivering us not from pain in this life, but from this present evil age. It has no hold on us as by faith we look to you. Give us wisdom to love our neighbor in ways that brings goodness and hope in practical terms, but protect us from thinking that the gospel and the salvation of sinners is anything but the practical solution you've given to the greatest problem of all. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.